Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast in the New Books Network. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ryan Hall about his book, Beneath the Backbone of the World, Blackfoot People in the North American Borderland, 1720 to 1877, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2020. Dr. Hall is an assistant professor of history and Native American studies at Colgate University. Beneath the backbone of the world tells the story of the Blackfoot people who lived and controlled a large region of what is today the U.S. and the Canadian Great Plains. Dr. Hall explores how the Blackfoot people were able to hold on to their positions of power within the borderlands as both European and American colonizers encroached on their lands for over a century. Dr. Hall, welcome to the program. Well, thanks so much for having me, Derek. So I guess to get things started, can you tell our listeners how you came to this uh, topic and why you decided to study it? Yeah, I came to this topic uh, when I was a graduate student. Um, I was getting my PhD at Yale and I was kind of, I was in my second year and I was casting about for a dissertation topic and I came to this one. Um, a couple of things led me in this direction specifically. Um First off, uh, I was really excited at the time. You know, I came to grad school interested in the American West. I've always been interested in um, the region and uh, historical change. But I really started as a historian of settler society and of settler colonialism. But around that time, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there there was this... uh, huge burst of of books that I read uh, as a graduate student that were just extremely exciting to me that were about the indigenous uh, experience, especially in the early West. So, um, you know, the 17th and 18th, early 19th centuries, books like Kathleen Duvall's The Native Ground, uh, Ned Blackhawk's Violence Over the Land, um, Pekka Hamalainen's The Comanche Empire, and these books all pointed to this history that I just didn't know much about, but I found tremendously exciting, which was the, the profound transformations that were being experienced and reckoned with by indigenous people far before the, you know, the traditional frontier, American frontier ever expanded into the West. Um, how indigenous people were reckoning with things like uh, the fur trade, with epidemic disease, with horses, with with environmental change. And it was all kind of happening off camera um, in our, our traditional history books. And I just found that super, super exciting. So um, I was interested in that. Uh, so I, I pivoted to doing more indigenous history. It seemed really exciting and vital. Uh, and the Blackfoot in particular, I just started reading about the, the Northern Great Plains and just because I love the region, I'm drawn to it. And I saw the the Blackfoot were kind of all over, all over the place. They're kind of omnipresent in hist- histories of this region. Uh, 
but they were also kind of invisible. There wasn't a real understanding out there of what was going on with the Blackfoot, why they were responding in the way that they did, why they were where they were doing what they were doing during this time period. So they're kind of omnipresent, but also invisible, this kind of mysterious but important presence. And uh, that's what got me going. And, you know, just getting into things, can you tell our listeners who the Blackfoot people are? Yes, uh, that's important. (laughs) The Blackfoot people are uh, the indigenous people of what is now Western Montana and Southern Alberta. That is, uh, you could also call that the the Northwestern Great Plains. So the the Great Plains is this massive ecosystem that spans uh, from Western Canada all the way down to the Rio Grande. And if you think of that, it's a huge, huge chunk in the center of the continent. The Blackfoot are are the Northwestern corner of that. That's their homeland. Um, And it's it's a huge area, uh, the Blackfoot homeland. So, if, if you kind of transposed it, it would be about the size of the state of Minnesota. So it's a really big area. So that's where they are. Um, the, who they are, so Blackfoot is, Blackfoot is not a tribe. It's not a nation. Uh, it's a, Blackfoot is actually a language and a culture. But there are three, it's actually three different nations. So there's the Siksika, uh, the Kainai, or the Blood and the Pekani, or the Pekani. And those three nations together have come to be known as Blackfoot. Uh, so the Blackfoot are, uh, they're what's often called Plains Indian, Plains Indigenous people. Um, they, uh, so their history, in many ways, it looks, the, the, their depiction in history is often a lot like you know, similar to other iconic Plains indigenous groups, like say the Cheyenne or the Lakota or the Comanche, things like that. They're, they were, during this time period, uh, equestrian societies. They adopted and mastered horses um, and were highly adaptable and controlled this massive part of the continent. What sets Blackfoot people apart from those other groups uh, in some ways, is their really deep connection to this place. And that's something I really tried to foreground in the book. Uh, this homeland that I described, the northwestern corner of the Great Plains, that's been the home of Blackfoot people um, for at least a thousand years, probably much longer than that. There's been cultural continuity. The ancestors of people who are now Blackfoot have been there really since time immemorial, just an extremely, extremely long time. And uh, which sets, which is different from a lot of other Plains indigenous groups who who have migrated at different times in their history or have, have sort of shifted around. Comanche people have roots in um, the Great Basin of the West and they swept into what is now Texas and Oklahoma, the 18th century Lakota people. Um, have roots in the Missouri River Valley and Minnesota and, and expanded onto the northern Great Plains in the 19th century, late 18th and 19th century. Uh, but the Blackfoot people, they're also this really powerful group who's a lot like the Lakota and the Comanche. But they, the geographic stability and rootedness is what really sets their history apart. That homeland has not changed um, throughout their history. and. I realized during during doing the research for this book and being out there um, 
that really it's the his, the history of the Blackfoot is really the history of this place um, and their connection to this place and the way they understood the geography of that place to maintain their connection and to maintain themselves there. And that's what I would say. That's how I would describe uh, the Blackfoot. Yeah, I found one of the interesting things that you said towards the beginning of your book is that, you know, in historiography about Native people, it's usually one of, you know, Westford expansion, looking at what's happening to Native and Indigenous people as uh, settler colonials are moving west or, you know, there's occasionally sort of, you know, facing east from Indian country and looking from that perspective. And you said for the Blackfoot people, it's really neither one. Their their sort of orientation would be more of a north versus south of looking across, you know, these vast country, uh, vast region to, you know, the northern imperial powers and the southern imperial powers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what I really tried to do with this book is place the uh, as much as I could as an outsider, um, root myself in Blackfoot country as I wrote, um, like write the history of this place from this place and uh, not try and fit it into the history of the United States or into the history of Canada, but to see it as the history of Blackfoot country. And and go from there. And going from there really led me, like you said, to to come, kind of reorient myself in a lot of ways. We are trained as um, Americans or Canadians in our, in our histories to see things on a uh, latitudinal latitudinal axis. I would say going our histories march from east to west, and. Europeans encounter Native people or vice versa uh, along that axis. But the history is always sort of moving in that direction. But if you really center yourself from the very beginning, not in a westward moving frontier of a nation, a a nation state, um, but in an indigenous homeland, uh, you you free yourself from that direction and other, other things become much more important. And so what I found was that I'm not, I, didn't, I wasn't writing a history about an indigenous people bracing against, facing east and bracing against an expanding frontier. Um, their, their most important ties, the most important connections to the Blackfoot were north and south. And that's, that's how the political history of this region um, really played out, was this north-south axis. So... And that way, it's 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 a border. That's kind of what makes it a borderlands history. It's a north south story, um, not not an east west story. Uh, one of the things that you look at initially in the book is how contact with European powers initially changed Blackfoot society. And so, what was going on there? Yeah. So, uh, talking about change, um, there's always this tension in. in uh, Native history and Native studies between continuity and change. And so I'll, I'll start with a caveat. And this is, you know, this, these are critiques and, and conversations I've had with um, Indigenous scholars, too, um, is that there's a danger. You know, so we're talking about the fur trade here. and We're talking about the arrival of European goods, let's say, um, and talking about how that impacted Native people. Um, 
there's a danger there of kind of answering the question within the question and assuming that Europeans and European goods transformed native society. Um, when you could also focus a lot on continuity and how native people maintained uh, their way of life uh, in, in the face of all of these changes. Um, so, you know, you always got to balance continuity and change because if you only talk about change, that can become very ethnocentric. All that being said, uh, contact with Europeans, trade with Europeans, it's, it's unavoidable. It was enormously important and transformative for indigenous people in a lot of different ways. It didn't change everything, but it changed a lot. Uh, so the way I think of it, when we're talking about the early sections of the book, especially, and how Blackfoot people who have been in this, this place for millennia engaged, first, first started feeling the effects of Europeans. Uh, there's three things going on. Uh, number one, there's the arrival of horses, which is a huge deal on the Great Plains, uh, throughout the Great Plains. So around the 1720s, 1730s, horses arrive. Uh, it's, it's just hard to even uh, fathom how, how transformative horses could be for indigenous people, especially in a region like that where um, water transportation, that sort of thing, isn't really very common. And the boundaries of, of the world are basically how far somebody could walk. Horses allow, allow you to travel. They allow you to carry goods. They allow you to move and explore the world um, in new ways. Um, so horses. Uh, the other thing that's happening are is the arrival of European manufactured goods. So things like steel, uh, iron, textiles, uh, later on guns and ammunition. Those are also <laughs> extremely important. Uh, so obviously for warfare, things like, like iron weapons, arrowheads, knives, uh, make warfare much more lethal. Uh, guns came later, uh, but were also obviously a huge deal. They transform hunting. Uh, horses and guns transform hunting in a big way. You can actually hunt, like chase bison instead of fooling them. Um, and using sort of methods to uh, trap them, which are very um, intense, labor-intensive and dangerous. You can actually chase bison for the first time. Um, European goods also transform domestic life. So traditionally in Blackfoot society, hunting and warfare are, are male realms and everything else, the sort of domestic sphere is the female realm. And... Uh, European goods were probably more transformative for women than for men. And I think women were driving more of the demand in the fur trade in a lot of ways. But things like um, iron kettles, uh, metal scrapers to remove meat and hair from hides, which is very labor intensive, hatchets for gathering wood. It's hard to even imagine what, uh, how transformative that could be um, as far as reducing labor um, for, for Native women. So, so first you got horses, then you got uh, manufactured goods. And the third part of this um, is epidemic disease. And all of these things are arriving around the same time uh, through indigenous networks, not directly from Europeans, but through indigenous people. Epidemic disease, smallpox, measles, chickenpox, that sort of whooping cough. Um, 
enormously devastating. Anybody familiar with Native history knows the contours of this story. Enormously devastating and destabilizing for Native people. So combined, these three things that are arriving, sort of crashing, these waves that are crashing upon this ancient homeland, Blackfoot country, in the 18th century, all within a few decades of one another, um, are tremendously destabilizing um, and force Blackfoot people to continually uh, adapt and respond and and figure out ways to to preserve themselves in in what's become a, a new world in a lot of ways. And that's really and that's how I begin the book and, and that's really the story that I'm telling here. And so in terms of adapting to this new world, one of the things that you look at is Blackfoot trading practices mm-hmm. uh, and how they they were before European contact and then how they s- sort of slowly start to change over the course of the 18th century. And so what's going on there? So uh, talking about trading practices, it's a lot like, you know, I, I could start again with the, the thinking about continuity and change um, with trade. So with Trade well. Uh, let me just give a primer on how the fur trade worked in in Blackfoot country during the 18th century. So for a, a long time, um, trade was not face to face. The fur trade, the way we think of it, a fur trade imposed some white traders in there. Native people visit. And they, they trade furs for goods. That's not really how it worked. Uh, the way it worked was Europeans, British people, established posts on Hudson Bay, so way off in, in northeastern Canada. And they'd establish a post there, and indigenous people, Cree and Assiniboine, Nakota people, would, would paddle canoes there. They would visit, they would trade, and then they would take those goods and paddle 2,000 miles or so um, east through all the lakes and rivers of uh, Western Canada and make their way to the, the Western Great Plains and visit people like the Blackfoot. And trade again, and they trade with them, and they'd gather furs and that sort of thing um, at a huge markup and make a lot of money for themselves, and then they'd paddle it on back to, to Hudson Bay. And so we call that the middleman system, um, or scholars have called that the middleman system. And, and Cree, so Cree and Assiniboine people were really controlling the fur trade in Canada for a long time. What changes all of that? What leads to uh, face-to-face fur trade for Blackfoot people? is um, smallpox. So in 1781, there's this massive smallpox epidemic that sweeps across the entire continent. And it's really devastating in Canada. It's probably the first smallpox epidemic in the region. And a lot of those middlemen, those traders who would go back and forth for the markup, um, were, uh, were killed. And they were really weakened. And that gave the fur trading uh, companies the opportunity or the opening to bypass them and to move west themselves and to establish fur trading posts in places like Edmonton, in Blackfoot, in Alberta, and Blackfoot territory. Uh, so those sorts of changes going on um, are a big part of early in the book. As far as face-to-face interaction, so after the 1780s, and Blackfoot people and Europeans are trading face-to-face. As far as 
those trade interactions, continuity and change. I think about this. There's a lot to these interactions. The more I read about them, um, it wasn't just you know black people show up at a trading post and say, "Hey, I've got you know fifty furs. What do you give me?" Uh, there was a lot that went into it. There, it was all very choreographed, and there was a lot more than just goods being exchanged. Um, Blackfoot people would always, um, before they'd arrive, they'd send a, a boy ahead to warn the traders the post of their arrival um, the, the following day. That would give the, the British fur traders a chance to get ready because there was going to be a ceremony. Um, the following day, the fur traders would come out of the post and meet the Blackfoot as they arrived. They'd all be dressed in their finest clothing. Um, they'd meet outside the post. They'd exchange gifts. They'd um, sit down. They'd smoke, which is a really uh, important religious um, uh, religious act. Uh, smoking tobacco is together. Um, they'd give another gift of alcohol. And then the following day, they'd actually trade. Um, so... That all sounds like I'm just rambling about what a fur trade interaction would look like. But when I talk about continuity and change, what I found is that those interactions between Blackfoot people and fur traders early on were probably were almost exactly what Cree people were doing at fur trading posts a couple thousand miles to the east. So Native people across the entire northern part of the continent followed these same ceremonies and rituals uh, during trade interactions, which suggests to us as scholars that uh, today that these practices almost certainly far predated the arrival of Europeans. So what, what's happening is Europeans are kind of being incorporated into native trade networks, native trade ceremonies, uh, kinships, friendships, alliances that existed beforehand. So the fur trade is is kind of like some new people and some new goods being mapped onto trade networks that already existed and trade practices that already existed. Uh, and that's just another way that Blackfoot people are trying to make the most uh, of this new world that they've been thrown into. And one thing that you speak about that I, I found really interesting, it's sort of, you know, a small part of this story that, you know, as you say, kind of it represents something bigger is a chance encounter between a group of Blackfoot people and a part of Lewis and Clark's expedition. And so what happened there? Why is this emblematic of the way that society is changing around Blackfoot people and how they are responding to that change? This is the moment when, in the book when Lewis and Clark arrive. It's, I see it as a really pivotal moment in, uh, in Blackfoot history. Um, it's where this kind of becomes a borderlands history. It's the first arrival of Americans. What I've been, what I've been talking about already is, is what's happening in what became became Canada. Um, this is their first encounter with Americans on the southern part of their territory, what is now Montana. And it's really important. It's another one of these moments when I say that Blackfoot people are kind of omnipresent in American Western history, but not really understood. This is a great example of that. Lewis and Clark are, you know, this incredibly iconic story in American history. We've all learned about it, right? They 
go from St. Louis, St. Louis to Oregon and back again, 6,000 miles. They map the American West, lay the groundwork for uh, colonialism across the region later on. They're uh, wildly successful for the most part. Most of the interactions with Native people are peaceful, um, except for this one. So on the way back from the Pacific Coast in 1806, Lewis and Clark split up, and Meriwether Lewis uh, goes north into what is now northwestern Montana near Glacier National Park to explore a river called the Marias River, or the Black people call it the Bear River. And while he's up there, he um, encounters a group of Blackfoot horse raiders who are returning from a, a raid on the Crows. And they have this very tense interaction. And uh, Lewis explains to them what he's doing there. They've been traveling across the West and uh, meeting different Native people and inviting them to trade and, and making all these friends. And that he must be, you know, invited Blackfoot people to trade too. Uh, and within hours, this devolves into bloodshed, and uh, Meriwether Lewis and his men uh, kill, uh, a lot of people would say murder, two of the Blackfoot uh, people there, and, and flee. Now, this is, a, this is an important moment, I think. Um, it's often kind of treated as a, a footnote in the history of Lewis and Clark, or kind of like an unfortunate incident, or maybe like... The one moment where things went bad for the Blackfoot or for, for Lewis and Clark. Uh, but I see this moment as actually really important. And it actually points to a parallel history to Lewis and Clark that's actually just as important as Lewis and Clark. Uh, what happened in the, that meeting there in 1806 that went so badly? There's, there's a lot of geopolitics wrapped into that moment. Uh, Blackfoot people had essentially for a few decades prior to this, at least, prior to Lewis, Meredith Lewis intruding, had managed to control the region's fur trade, to control um, where British traders were um, and where their guns and weapons and whatnot went in the American West, um, and who could and could not have access to those traders. Uh, so the Blackfoot people have basically allowed British traders to expand as far as Edmonton and then basically said, uh, no farther. And that allowed them to be, kind of control the entire, the entire Northwest and be the, the, the sort of most prominent, most powerful group in the entire region because they controlled technology. Europeans didn't control the flow of technology. The Blackfoot did. What Meriwether Lewis did when he showed up is he basically said, oh, we're bypassing all of that. And we've traded with all these groups that have been uh, desperately seeking access to guns and stuff, but you've been denying uh, that access for decades. And isn't that great? Well, it's the worst thing you could possibly have. He could possibly have said um, to Blackfoot people, it's profoundly dangerous to Blackfoot people and to their interests. Um, and so it makes perfect sense that this would uh, devolve into bloodshed. And um, or that black people would respond negatively to this. So there's this whole uh, history in this region. And um, I would say that the Blackfoot side, side of that story is just as impactful, if not more impactful, than uh, the Lewis and Clark part of it. The other thing I'll say about Lewis and Clark, so that's the lead up. That's why they fought. 
the other thing that people don't talk about with Lewis and Clark, you know, the great trailblazers of the American West or whatever, uh, is that the, the trail they supposedly blazed up the Missouri River, over the mountains, um, to the Pacific Coast, the most obvious path into the West, the far West. Nobody else was able to follow that path for a full quarter century, for a full 25 years after that meeting. Um, there was no trail blazed. Uh, people who went to the far west had to find different paths, things like South Pass in Wyoming, that sort of thing. And that's because the Blackfoot, after this meeting, very intentionally uh, blockaded the Missouri River and the entire region and cut it off to Americans. And there was this, I call it a wildly successful campaign to, to stop American expansion in the Northwest. Um, that has been almost entirely um, missed by historians, and it's but it's really really important. So uh, the the Blackfoot side of the story is really um, it's complicated, but it's really impactful, and you can only really understand it getting back to what we talked about at the beginning by understanding what's happening in the North and in the South, and understanding the geopolitics of Blackfoot country. Uh, on its own terms, as opposed to just, if you just try and fit this, this meeting into the story of Lewis and Clark, it doesn't make sense. But if you, if you fit Lewis into the history of the Blackfoot and the history of indigenous people in that region, what happened and what happened afterwards makes perfect sense. Yeah, for me, I just I found that so interesting. I mean, for for one thing, you know, I hadn't heard about it before. Um, and then, as you just said, the sort of reframing that you're doing there of, you know, let's not try and fit this experience um, that the Blackfoot had within, you know, the larger framework of Lewis and Clark's expedition, but turn it around and fit what they're doing and what they're trying to do and what they end up doing in the context of Blackfoot history and society. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, as you said, you know, after this, they have a sort of, as you said, wildly successful um, sort of blockade of U.S. trade um, where, you know, they sort of close down and try and make sure that they can keep control of their territory. And you point out that by the 1830s, this changes. And so what's going on that this would eventually change? And as you've you know alluded to before and said before, um, the Blackfoot people would again sort of adapt and change to the, you know, their surrounding environments. Yeah, absolutely. And so this changed in the 1830s, so specifically 1830 and 1831. Uh, Blackfoot people decide to allow Americans to expand onto the upper Missouri River in what is now Montana. Uh, that's how the blockade ends. The Blackfoot people decide it's in their interest to allow a fur trading post to be established at a place called what became Fort Benton, Montana, and that became what is now the state of Montana or the first settlement in the state of Montana. Uh, why did that happen? Um, this is a, another key turning point in the book, I would say, when Blackfoot people decided to pivot and to engage with Americans in this way. A couple things are happening. Number one, I talked about this blockade they've placed on the Rocky Mountains and this way they've been able to control the flow of goods into the Rocky Mountain West for decades. By 1830, 
that started to erode. Um, the Rocky Mountain fur trade has basically bypassed the Blackfoot um, by very out-of-the-way routes. <laughs> uh, these goods have started to make their way. It hasn't failed necessarily, but it's starting to erode a little bit. Um, Native people in the Rocky Mountains are starting to get access to European trade. The other thing that's happening, uh, again, we have to look at Canadian history. Uh, This is a a big thing about the book, just as a side note. You can't understand what happens in Montana in 1830 and what becomes Montana in 1830 without understanding a little bit of Canadian history here and what's happening in northern Blackfoot country. The Blackfoot people, there have been fur trading posts in the northern part of Blackfoot territory for 50 years at this point since that smallpox epidemic that I talked about before. Um, Edmonton is the big one, now the city of Edmonton in Alberta. Uh, and But there had always been uh, two companies, at least, up there. Uh, there was the Hudson's Bay Company, the British fur trading company based in London. And then there was this um, Montreal-based company, we might call it a Canadian uh, francophone company called the Northwest Company. So there's a Hudson Bay Company, and the Northwest Company. And they're always build posts right next to each other, and they're always competing really fiercely with one another. So when the Blackfoot people go up to Edmonton, they always have two, two stores they can basically go to, which is really important for trade because uh, there are people competing over your goods and you have leverage. What happens in 1821, so this is 10 years prior, in 1821, um, this competition in Canada between the Hudson's Bay Company and the Northwest Company gets really, really nasty. Um, they start intentionally starving each other. They start, uh, in some cases, killing each other. Um, and the British Crown steps in in 1821 and says, okay, enough of this. You two are merging. Now, there will no longer be two fur trading companies in Western Canada. There will only be one. It will be the Hudson's Bay Company. So if they merged and Hudson Bay Company absorbed Northwest Company. So the Blackfoot essentially go to trade in 1822, and they, come, they go up to the post, and they realize there's only one post there. And they pay way less than they did before. And the Native people have lost all their, their trade leverage in the region. So Blackfoot people, this is, this is really bad for them. Um, it's not in their interests. And they adapt, as you say. And they say, well, what about those Americans? We have this huge homeland that spans all the way to the south, the Missouri River, where these Americans were trying to establish posts, and we stopped them. Why don't we allow them to do so with restrictions? Why don't we allow them to establish a post there? And then we'll have competition again. We can play the Americans off of the Canadians and vice versa and get our leverage back. And uh, that's leverage no other Native group will have. So it was a really savvy piece of, uh, I guess, geopolitics of diplomacy um, by Blackfoot people that allowed the Americans to expand into the region. It was a Blackfoot decision, not an American decision, to allow them to do that. And it changed the colonial geography of the American West in a really profound way. So the Blackfoot, uh, to put it another way, they... Uh, you know, we have this whole field called borderlands history, right? Uh, colonial borderlands, it's usually like two colonial areas and then some group in between that goes back and forth. There really wasn't a borderland on the Northwest Plains in, the, uh, in that way 
1830, when the Blackfoot said, imagined, hey, let's create a borderland. Let's invite the Americans in, um, and there will be a borderland, and we can use that borderland to our advantage. So creating a borderland was a really profound and powerful thing for them. Yeah, and I really like that sort of framing there of the Blackfoot people creating consciously and purposefully creating a borderland. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, usually I think a lot of people are, you know, used, as you were saying, to, you know, a borderland sort of coming into existence because we sort of, you know, from a, you know, European, Anglo Saxon point of view, it's just like, okay, you know, colonizers are going westward or going northward what have you and they're the ones creating a borderland because they're slowly expanding and everything like that and you're saying no one the blackfoot people were able to control you know this large swath of territory very effectively and then it was their decision to create this borderland so that they could you know play off these two imperial powers yeah absolutely absolutely so it's uh it's a creative act as opposed to a uh, reaction. So in speaking about, you know, Blackfoot U.S. relations, um, what's going on with them when it comes to the air surrounding the Civil War, you know, before, during, and especially after when, you know, I think a, a lot of people who are familiar with the Civil War, obviously, but less so about, you know, how fundamentally uh, the U.S.'s relationship with Native people in general changes after that period. And so what what does the Blackfoot-U.S. relationship look like during this time period? I think that uh, the Blackfoot experience – so, well, let me just give you the, the overview of what happens here. In 1855, Blackfoot people signed their first treaty with the U.S. government. Um, and uh, in 1862, there's a gold rush in Montana. Um, so lots of miners and settlers start to flood into the region. Uh, the government, uh, the, the whole relationship between the Blackfoot and the federal government starts to fall apart. The fur trade starts to fall apart um, as settlers pour in and start invading Blackfoot territory. Things, this invasion gets... Um, really intense by the late 1860s, right after the Civil War. It kind of devolves into what some people have called an Indian War, one of these conflicts. It's kind of this nasty, um, small-scale, almost like a guerrilla conflict during the late 1860s with lots of killings on both sides, which all culminates in 1870, something called the Marias Massacre, where the U.S. Army kills... Uh, at least 200 Blackfoot people on the Marias River. And afterwards, Blackfoot people are really, uh, in the United States, forced onto um, or confined onto a reservation. So it's this, this period around the Civil War, before and especially during and immediately after the Civil War, is, is really traumatic and catastrophic uh, time of conquest in the region. How should we think about, uh, which follows the contours of a lot of other indigenous groups. This is an extraordinarily violent time in the American West. Um, How should we think about the Civil War? I think that the Blackfoot, uh, this experience has made me rethink the connections between the Civil War and what's often called the Indian Wars, these conflicts in the American West at the same time. There's this huge Civil War historiography, right? Um, and then there's this big 
historiography of the Indian Wars and these conflicts in the American West. And they speak to each other sometimes in some ways um, uh, as part of the, you know, some of the connections could be the expansion of the U.S. military, the, um, the, uh, the rise of free soil ideology, um, the, the passing of uh, these um, expansionary uh, legislation during the Civil War, like the Homestead Act, uh, the rise of volunteer militias or state militias in the West that perpetrate some of the worst violence. All those things are sort of the, the threads connecting those two historiographies. But the piece that really comes through in the Blackfoot story that I don't think people have paid enough attention to is the more prosaic elements, just how everything just kind of broke down during the Civil War, um, diplomatically and economically. So there's this treaty in 1855, and the U.S. government agrees to pay the Blackfoot yearly um, payments of annuities that they'll have an agent, that they'll have a demonstration farm. Um, the, the agent will be kind of uh, pass out their annuity goods and kind of be there, go between with the U.S. government. And this will sort of smooth things out um, for a time. That's how the treaty is supposed to operate. Um, what happens when the Civil War begins is the Blackfoot have an agent that they like, this guy Alfred Vaughn, but his son is a general, a Confederate general in Mississippi. So Alfred Vaughn has to go. So Alfred Vaughn is immediately removed from his post. And nobody else even shows up for a year and a half. Uh, and the guy that does show up is um, some dry goods merchant from Kansas who knows nothing about Native people. Um, he stays there for like a month and then just leaves. And the agents they do get steal a lot of the goods. There's rapid inflation, so they get less, less stuff. Um, there's just this whole breakdown. Like the federal government can't get anybody qualified or interested to go to Montana and enter the Indian service because everybody's involved in the war. Um, so all of these very fragile diplomatic arrangements that have been made in things like the 1855 Blackfoot Treaty just collapse during the Civil War. Uh, just dysfunction. It's, it's not much more complicated than that. It's dysfunction. It's chaos. It's just the sort of um, poor bureaucratic uh, operations. It's this bureaucracy falling apart. Um, at the same time, the fur trade falls apart because there's all this disorder in interna international markets. Nobody wants to invest. There's no access to credit. The Mississippi River is closed off for a while. So the fur trade, the other thing that kind of props up Blackfoot power in, in Montana also falls apart. And the company that owns the fur trading posts in the region sells um, to these independent merchants who don't really care. Um, so everything kind of just falls apart during the early 1860s really rapidly. And um, all that's really, and what's left uh, is not diplomacy, it's not exchange, um, it's conquest and it's violence and it's theft. And things become really, um, become really bad. And that's what I think about with the, the connection between the Civil War and the West. It's these prosaic connections, these sort of ripple effects of this catastrophe in the eastern part of the United States ripple all the way out to a place like Montana and cause things to fall apart out there as well. 
So before we let you go, you know, we have this great book in front of us, and I encourage all of our listeners to become readers and go grab this book again, Beneath the Backbone of the World, Blackfoot People and the North American Borderland, 1720 to 1877. So we have this great book in front of us. What might you be working on next? What can we expect from you in the future? And, you know, I know this book just came out. So if you want to say I'm taking a much needed break, that is completely fine. <laughs> um, I'm, I've got a few ideas sort of percolating around, but with the, uh, I don't know, the, I guess the pause in life right now with uh, COVID-19 and everything, um, it's been hard to get into the archives or to travel anywhere to start really digging into a second project. Um, I One thing that's been put on the back burner for the foreseeable future, I'm really interested in seeing indigenous history uh, in, in international and transnational and global terms. Uh, so this book is uh, about what became the United States and Canada. Um, I'm interested uh, thinking about a project that would talk about uh, indigenous diplomacy, indigenous treaty making across the um, Anglophone world. So the U.S., Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. How did processes of treaty making, um, uh, negotiation, diplomacy? Uh, how did that? How did that process unfold similarly or, or differently across these uh, British settler colonies um, in, in these different places? Uh, I'm working on an article about uh, what I just talked about, the, the Civil War <laughs> and the West and, and bureaucratic dysfunction. That's what I've kind of spent my summer on. Um, but I, I'm increasingly, I find myself uh, drawn back uh, to the American West as well and, and to the Northern, into the Northern Great Plains. I think that getting back to where we started the conversation with talking about this incredibly dynamic history in the 17th and 18th century with all these changes rippling across the continent far in advance of, of settlers or explorers or whatever, um, and indigenous people remaking their worlds during this period. I think we're, we're only as historians, uh, you know, at the tip of the iceberg for that history, the history of the early West and indigenous reformation uh, indigenous response, um, creative adaptation in that period. So I believe I, I'll find my way back. Even if I end up going to Australia and New Zealand for a while, I'll find my way back uh, to the early West at some point. Well, I'm sure once you have something else out, we will have you right back onto the program. <laughs> but in any case, thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.